Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know for the NBME as it pertains to inborn errors of metabolism. Topics we'll be covering today include disorders of the metabolism of carbohydrates, amino acids, fatty acids, and nucleic acids, as well as a breakdown on the various lysosomal storage diseases, trying as always to leave you with a big-picture idea of what's really going on while sprinkling in some high-yield tidbits along the way. If you find this information helpful, please consider subscribing. If you subscribe right now, you'll be helping the algorithm to reach other students who may also find this information helpful, and in doing so, you'll be helping to make the world a smarter place. Thank you. And now, my friends, let's begin our discussion on the inborn errors of metabolism. We'll kick things off with carbohydrates, starting with galactosemia. Galactosemia is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme galactose-1-phosphate-uridyltransferase, or GALT, which is responsible for metabolizing galactose. The problem here is that breast milk and most formulas contain lactose, which is a disaccharide that gets broken down by the lactase enzyme in the brush borders of our small intestines into one molecule of glucose and one molecule of galactose. In patients with galactosemia, there's no GALT enzyme to further break down the galactose molecule, and this will cause it to accumulate and get acted upon by different enzymes and go down alternative metabolic pathways. One of those pathways leads to an accumulation of a toxic sugar alcohol known as galactitol, and it's this accumulation of galactitol that leads to the toxic manifestation of the disease. Signs and symptoms of galactosemia are typically apparent within the first day or two of life and include vomiting, hepatomegaly, cirrhosis, kidney failure, and cataracts, caused by an accumulation of galactitol within the lens of the eye, resulting in osmotic swelling of the lens epithelial cells. Treatment for galactosemia is to remove all galactose from the baby's diet, usually by switching to a soy-based formula. There are some other disorders that also affect the metabolism of galactose, such as galactokinase deficiency and Duarte galactosemia, and these tend to be less severe than classical galactosemia, and present with cataracts within the first few weeks of life, which, like the cataract seen in classical galactosemia, are reversible if detected early enough. Another thing to keep in the back of your mind is that females, specifically with galactosemia, will almost always have some degree of gonadal dysgenesis as a result of galactosemia, often presenting later in life as primary ovarian insufficiency, or early menopause, which can be treated with hormonal replacement therapy. Next up is hereditary fructose intolerance. Hereditary fructose intolerance is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme aldolase B, and this enzyme is involved in the metabolism of fructose, a sugar that is often found in fruits and vegetables. 
Unlike galactosemia, infants with hereditary fructose intolerance will typically be otherwise healthy at birth because fructose is not present in high quantities in the breast milk. However, once solid food is introduced at around four months or so, babies with hereditary fructose intolerance will have vomiting, abdominal pain, and an aversive reaction towards fruits and vegetables. Treatment for hereditary fructose intolerance is to avoid fructose, and most patients that do that will make a great recovery. Compare this to essential fructosuria, which is a harmless condition characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme fructokinase, resulting in high levels of fructose that are excreted through the urine. Essential fructosuria can present at any age, and unlike hereditary fructose intolerance, is completely benign and does not necessitate any particular treatment or diet alteration. Next up, let's discuss the glycogen storage diseases. There are several different enzymes responsible for the process of building up and breaking down glycogen, and a deficiency in any one of these could potentially result in a glycogen storage disease. These disorders exist on a spectrum, and most often affect organ systems with normally high densities of glycogen, namely the liver and the muscle. There's five main types of glycogen storage diseases that you should know about, and these are types 1 through 5, so let's go through each of them now. Type 1 glycogen storage disease is von Gierke's disease, and this is due to a deficiency in the enzyme glucose 6-phosphatase, which is responsible for catalyzing the last step of glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis in order to create one free molecule of glucose. The classic presentation for von Kierke's disease is an infant with hepatomegaly experiencing episodic hypoglycemia between feedings. These infants are not able to liberate glucose from the liver and thus will have hypoglycemia and eventual lactic acidosis, which will appear on an arterial blood gas as a pH less than 7.35 with elevated lactate levels. The mainstay of treatment for von Gierke's disease is to avoid hypoglycemia by having frequent starchy meals. Liver biopsy is not usually necessary in order to diagnose von Gierke's disease, but if one were to be done, then you may see something used known as the periodic acid shift stain and diastase test, or PAST-D. PAST-D is very useful in differentiating the glycogen granules of glycogen storage diseases from other sorts of cellular accumulations. The way that it works is that if the PAST stain is used, it will turn polysaccharides magenta, but when the sample is pretreated with the enzyme diastase, it degrades glycogen, resulting in changes to the slide letting you know that these accumulations were glycogen. Type 2 glycogen storage disease is Pompe's disease. Pompe's disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme lysosomal acid alpha-glucosidase, which is responsible for breaking down glycogen in the lysosomes. It's important to note that in the rest of the cell, the mechanism for breaking down the 1,4-glucose polymers of glycogen and the 1,6-branching linkages are each accomplished by using different enzymes, the so-called branching and debranching enzymes, which we'll be talking about in just a minute. However, in the lysosome, both of these branching and debranching roles are carried out by just a single enzyme, and that's lysosomal acid alpha-glucosidase. So when this enzyme gets knocked out, the result is much more severe due to the enzyme's dual function. A classic presentation for Pompe's disease is an infant with hypotonia, hepatomegaly, and cardiomegaly, which can be seen on a chest x-ray where the cardiac silhouette takes up more than half the chest. Historically, most infants with Pompe's disease would be dead by 8 months due to cardiac complications, but now with the advent of enzyme replacement therapy, these patients are now able to live much longer. Type 3 glycogen storage disease is Cori disease. 
which is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the debranching enzyme, which is responsible for breaking down the 1,6 branching points of glycogen. Patients with Cori disease are not able to properly utilize glycogen, and this is most prominent in the muscles and the liver. Cori disease follows a similar clinical course to von Gierke's disease, but a key differentiating factor between the two is that you will have elevated levels of creatinine kinase in Cori disease, and this is due to variable involvement in both the muscles and the liver. Type 4 glycogen storage disease is Anderson disease, which is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the branching enzyme, responsible for creating the 1,6 branching points of glycogen. In patients with Anderson disease, the glycogen is composed of abnormally long chains of glucose in simple 1,4 linkages without any of the normal 1,6 branches, and this abnormal glycogen is not able to be properly utilized. Similar to Cori disease, Anderson disease also has variable liver and muscle involvement. However, the clinical course of Anderson disease is much more severe than Cori disease and will often result in cirrhosis and liver failure necessitating transplantation. And finally, we have type 5 glycogen storage disease, also known as McCardle disease, which is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the myophosphorylase enzyme, which is an enzyme found exclusively in muscle cells and is responsible for the first step of glycogenolysis, wherein an inorganic phosphate is added in order to break off a single 1,4 linkage in order to release one molecule of glucose 1-phosphate. The classic presentation of McArdle's disease is a young adult who experiences exercise intolerance and muscle cramps, which are alleviated by resting. If you suspect a patient with McArdle disease, you would of course want to check their CK levels, which would be chronically elevated, but you should also do something called an ischemic exercise test. The ischemic exercise test evaluates whether or not patients have impaired glycogenolysis in their muscles. The way it works is that you measure the patient's lactate levels at baseline, then use a blood pressure cuff to cut off the arterial supply to their forearm, and then ask them to do an aerobic exercise. After a few minutes, you measure their lactate levels again, and in patients with normal glycogenolysis, you would expect a rise in the lactate levels due to the absence of oxygen forcing pyruvate to be diverted over to anaerobic respiration. However, in patients with impaired glycogen breakdown, such as in McArdle disease, they're not even able to produce the pyruvate in the muscles because they can't get glycogenolysis started in the first place. Treatment for McArdle disease is to have a diet that is high in carbohydrates while working with patients to find the right balance between staying active without working out too much to exacerbate their symptoms. Before we move on from glycogen storage diseases, let's attempt to summarize all of them in just a few broad strokes. Type 1 affects just the liver. Type 5 affects just the muscle. Types 3 and 4 have variable liver and muscle involvement. And type 2 affects the lysosomes, which are basically everywhere. Out of all of these, types 2 and 4 tend to be the most severe and result in early death without proper treatment, which are respectively enzyme replacement therapy with lysosomal acid alpha-glucosidase and liver transplantation. Let's shift our attention now to disorders of amino acid metabolism, starting with phenylketonuria. Phenylketonuria is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase which is responsible for catalyzing the conversion of phenylalanine into tyrosine. Like many of the disorders we're discussing today, phenylketonuria is most commonly diagnosed at birth as part of a long list of mandated diseases that hospitals screen for, collectively known as the newborn screen, which for the case of phenylketonuria is done by measuring the ratio of phenylalanine to tyrosine on a dried blood spot test. 
However, if the baby was discharged too early or if they didn't have adequate protein intake prior to being screened, it's possible that a diagnosis could be missed until symptoms begin to present months after birth. The symptoms of phenylketonuria are manifested by both the accumulation of phenylalanine as well as deficiencies in tyrosine and all of its downstream metabolites. If you'll remember, tyrosine is a precursor to the catecholamine neurotransmitters, dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And so by a few months of age, patients with fentanylketonuria will tend to present with developmental delays, irritability, and or seizures. But don't forget that tyrosine is also a precursor to melanin, and so these babies will also have very light hair and skin pigmentation. Another giveaway that might clue you into phenylketonuria is a description of the skin and urine having a musty odor. Treatment for phenylketonuria is with a specialized diet that avoids phenylalanine but is also rich in tyrosine so as to bypass the defective enzyme. Pregnant women with phenylketonuria should be very closely monitored during their pregnancy because even if the baby doesn't inherit the double recessive genotype for the disease, they can still be negatively affected in utero by the mom's accumulation of phenylalanine. Next up, let's discuss alcaptonuria. Alcaptonuria is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme homogentosate 1,2-dioxygenase, or HGD. HGD is an important enzyme in tyrosine metabolism, and one of its metabolites is homogentisic acid. In alcaptonuria, a deficiency of HGD leads to a buildup of homogentisic acid, which gets acted on via alternative pathways to eventually produce pigmented molecules that get deposited throughout the body in a process known as ochronosis. In children with alcaptonuria, one of the first signs of the disease will be seen as darkening of urine-stained diapers, or darkening of urine that has been left to stand out. This makes sense when you remember that tyrosine is involved in melanin production, and likewise homogentisic acids metabolites also display pigmentation. The alcrinosis pigment of alcaptonuria can deposit in various parts of the body, particularly in the joints and connective tissue, so arthritis is a common long-term complication seen in these patients. The gold standard diagnosis of alcaptonuria is to evaluate the urine for elevated levels of homogentisic acid. Unfortunately, there is no cure for alcaptonuria, but patients are recommended to follow a low-protein diet so as to limit the amount of harmful metabolites. Next up, let's discuss maple syrup urine disease. Maple syrup urine disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme branched-chain ketoacid dehydrogenase complex, or BCKAD, which is responsible for the breakdown of the three branched-chain amino acids. And do you remember the names of the three branched-chain amino acids? That's right, it's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Very good. The branched-chain amino acids are neutral and therefore can freely cross the blood-brain barrier. Accumulations of leucine, isoleucine, or valine in the brain result in neurotoxic effects seen within the first few days of life. In addition, these amino acid deposits can act as osmolar agents, drawing in water to the brain, leading to cerebral edema, which can eventually lead to brain herniation, which we talked about more of in episode 16. The classic presentation for maple syrup urine disease is a baby who exhibits irritability and is found to have ketonuria within the first few days of life, followed by signs of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE, referred to episode 16. In addition to neurotoxic effects, babies with maple syrup urine disease will also have, you guessed it, urine that smells like maple syrup, and this is due to certain metabolites of isoleucine that have a sweet aroma. Treatment of maple syrup urine disease is to ensure that all branched-chain amino acids are eliminated from the diet. 
and for acute cases of metabolic derangements, hemodialysis can be implemented in order to rapidly remove the excess amino acids and keto acids from the blood, while sodium phenylbutyrate, a nitrogen scavenger, can also be used. Next up, let's discuss homocystinuria. Homocystinuria is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme cystathionine beta synthase, which is responsible for converting the amino acid homocysteine into the essential amino acid methionine. Patients with homocystinuria do not usually have symptoms at birth, but by early childhood, they will begin to show manifestations of homocysteine buildups as well as signs of low methionine, including blood clots and characteristic skeletal features resembling a morphinoid habitus. There are a few overlapping features between Marfan syndrome and homocystinuria, so let's run through a few of those now to help us differentiate between them. Number one is that homocystinuria from cystathionine beta synthase deficiency is inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern, whereas Marfan syndrome is autosomal dominant. Number two, both diseases feature dislocations of the lens of the eye, but in homocystinuria, the lens dislocation is deviated downwards, while in Marfan syndrome, the dislocation is deviated upwards. And number three, patients with homocystinuria tend to have an increased risk of blood clots that can cause strokes earlier in life, while the main vascular risk in Marfan syndrome is an ascending aortic dissection arising from a dilated aortic root. There is no cure for homocystinuria, but some patients may respond to supplementation with pyridoxine, folic acid, and cobalamin, or vitamins B6, B9, and B12, which are thought to help in this case because they all work together in methionine metabolism in order to perform one carbon metabolic processes such as methylation. A key step in the metabolism of all amino acids is to get rid of the excess nitrogen, and this is accomplished by converting non-soluble ammonia, NH3, into soluble urea for excretion by the kidneys. There are several hepatic enzymes and associated proteins involved in this process, and deficiencies in any of these can lead to an accumulation of ammonia in the blood, or hyperammonemia. Some examples of these proteins include things like ornithine transcarbamylase synthase, carbamoyl phosphate synthase, and others, but basically the bottom line in all of these disorders is that they can't produce urea and these babies will subsequently develop hyperammonemia within the first day or two of life. Excessive ammonia is very dangerous for developing neurons and will initially present shortly after birth with nonspecific signs and symptoms such as lethargy and vomiting, and if left untreated, will eventually cause inflammation and osmotic stress on the brain leading to cerebral edema and potentially fatal consequences. Therefore, if hyperammonemia is detected in a neonate, you're not going to want to wait around until you get an official diagnosis. And instead, you'll follow a general treatment protocol consisting of rapid ammonia removal via hemodialysis and or the use of ammonia scavenging agents such as sodium phenylbutyrate or sodium benzoate. And in general, all infants suspected of having any metabolic disorder should be getting IV hydration with solutions containing 10% dextrose. The rationale here is to provide the body with an easy-to-access energy resource without having to tap into the body's natural reserves, since you don't yet know which pathway is affected. Let's move on now to disorders of fatty acid metabolism. The most common disorder of fatty acid metabolism is a deficiency in the enzyme medium-chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, which is responsible for breaking down medium-chain fatty acids in the mitochondria in a process known as beta-oxidation. Each step of beta-oxidation takes a medium-chain fatty acid and breaks it down into a slightly smaller fatty acid plus one molecule of acetyl-CoA and then that acetyl-CoA can go on to perform in gluconeogenesis 
as well as to provide energy in the form of ketone bodies. Babies with median chain ACE-CoA deficiency, or MCAD, will typically be asymptomatic in the neonatal period because they have sufficient glycogen stores to sustain them throughout their day-to-day -day activities. However, during periods of increased energy demands, such as during an acute illness, the glycogen stores will be quickly depleted, and that's where these kids will run into trouble. Treatment of MCAD in the acute phase is to provide dextrose-containing IV solutions, and in the long term, these patients should be advised to have frequent meals. In patients who can't metabolize long-chain fatty acids, then these patients must strictly avoid long-chain fats, as well as supplement their diet with medium-chain triglyceride, or MCT oil. Let's shift our attention now to lysosomal storage diseases. Among its many roles in the cell, the lysosome is responsible for digesting and recycling large macromolecules in the cell, such as proteins and polysaccharides. It does this by using lysosomal-specific enzymes that only work within the acidic environment of the lysosome. The process by which the lysosomes are assembled and controlled is tightly regulated, and dysfunction can result in a lysosomal storage disease. Tay-Sachs disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme hexosaminidase A, which is responsible for degradation of the ganglioside GM2. GM2 is a membrane-bound protein found in developing neurons, but in patients with Tay-Sachs disease, GM2 builds up in the neuronal lysosomes, leading to demyelination and neuronal dysfunction. The classic presentation for Tay-Sachs disease is an Ashkenazi Jewish infant with delayed or regressed developmental milestones with a characteristic cherry red spot on fundoscopy. The cherry red spot is also seen in a few other lysosomal storage diseases, and in the case of Tay-Sachs disease, it is caused by deposition of GM2 in the ganglion cells of the retina, turning them into a grayish-white color seen in the areas surrounding the macula. However, the fovea, which is in the center of the macula, does not contain ganglion cells, so it will remain cherry red in the center surrounded by gray-white deposits of GM2 in the surrounding retinal cells. Unfortunately, there is no cure for Tay-Sachs disease, and most patients will die by the age of four years. Neiman-Pick disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the lysosomal enzyme acid sphingomyelinase. It is similar to Tay-Sachs disease in that Neiman-Pick will classically present within the first few months of life with delayed milestones and a cherry red macula, but unlike Tay-Sachs disease, these patients will also have hepatosplenomegaly. In addition, patients with Neiman-Pick disease will also have foam cells on histology, which are lipid-laden macrophages caused by distended lysosomes. There's no cure for Neiman-Pick disease, and most patients will die within a few years of diagnosis. Next up, Gaucher's disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by deficiency in the enzyme glucocerebrosidase, leading to accumulations of glucocerebroside in the lysosomes of the cells in the liver, spleen, and bone marrow. The classic presentation for Gaucher's disease is a young child with hepatosplenomegaly, joint pain, and pancytopenia due to bone marrow involvement placing them at increased risk for bleeding and recurrent infections. On histology, you may also see Gaucher cells, which are basically the same thing as foam cells, except that the lysosomes of Gaucher cells appear to be more filled with crumpled up paper than they do with foam. Most patients with Gaucher disease tend to respond really well to enzyme replacement therapy in order to reestablish glucocerebrosidase activity. However, there are some variants of Gaucher's disease with more neurological symptoms, and these cannot be reversed by enzyme replacement.
Next up, metachromatic leukodystrophy is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme aryl sulfatase A, leading to an accumulation of sulfatides which disrupt the myelin sheaths of both the central and peripheral nervous systems. Metachromatic leukodystrophy gets its name because, number one, it's a leukodystrophy disorder, one of many all characterized by improper myelination of the developing nervous system, and number two, this particular leukodystrophy displays metachromatic granules when viewed under the microscope, which is just another way of saying that there are little clumps on the slide that stain different colors, and these metachromatic granules are the accumulations of sulfatides in the neurons. The most common presentation of metachromatic leukodystrophy is a baby under two years old who has regressions in their fine or gross motor skills after having previously met all of their developmental milestones. The average lifespan for patients with metachromatic leukodystrophy is usually no more than a few years. Next up, Crabbe disease is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme galactocerebrosidase, which is normally found in lysosomes of developing neurons. Similar to metachromatic leukodystrophy, Crabbe disease causes disruptions in myelination and is thus also considered a leukodystrophy disorder. But the main histological feature of Crabbe disease are the presence of globoid cells, which are multinucleated giant cells that are actually microglial cells that came in to clean up the abnormal myelin debris. Most patients with Crabbe disease will die within a few years of diagnosis. Next up is Pompe's disease, which we've actually already spoken about during our discussion on the glycogen storage diseases. If you'll remember, Pompe's disease is glycogen storage disease number two, and is characterized by a deficiency in which enzyme again? That's right, it's lysosomal acid alpha-glucosidase. Very good. Next up, let's discuss the mucopolysaccharidosis disorders Hurler disease and Hunter disease. Mucopolysaccharidosis refers to the inability to break down mucopolysaccharides, which are long stretches of repeating sugar molecules like dermatan sulfate and heparin sulfate, which are found in the joints and connective tissue. Hurler disease, also known as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, is an autosomal recessive disorder presenting in babies with significant neurocognitive delays and coarse facial features, and these babies usually die within a few years. Hunter disease, also known as mucopolysaccharidosis type 2, is an X-linked disorder, so it's going to be mostly seen in males. Hunter disease is also considerably more mild as compared to Hurler disease, with many patients with Hunter disease living well into adulthood. And the last lysosomal storage disease I'll mention today is Fabry disease. Fabry disease is another X-linked disorder, and this is characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme alpha-galactosidase A, leading to an accumulation of globotriacylceramide, or GB3. One of the places GB3 likes to accumulate is in the glomerulus, and this causes nephrotic-level proteinuria with the loss of antithrombotic proteins in the urine, placing these patients at increased risk for stroke or other thrombotic events. The classic presentation for Fabry disease is a young man who has a stroke and is also found to have end-stage renal disease, often with characteristic petechial lesions located around the belly button, known as angiokeratomas. Treatment of Fabry disease is with kidney transplantation, which is done in conjunction with enzyme replacement therapy in order to restore alpha-galactosidase A activity. Let's now talk about a few disorders of nucleic acid metabolism. 
Lesch-Nihon syndrome is an X-linked disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase, or HPRT, which is a major enzyme in the purine salvage pathway. Patients with Lesch-Nihon syndrome develop accumulations of guanine and hypoxanthine, which is eventually converted into uric acid and can precipitate out as sodium urate stones in the joints and urinary tract. The hallmark feature of Lesch-Nihon syndrome is a neurological impairment with characteristic self-injurious behavior. Allopurinol is an inhibitor of the xanthine oxidase enzyme and is useful in the prevention of sodium urate stones. However, the neurological impairment and self-injurious behavior is best handled with a multidisciplinary team, including psychiatrists and therapists. And lastly, adenosine deaminase deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder that also disrupts normal purine metabolism, except the key feature of adenosine deaminase deficiency is with its effects on the immune system. And this is because adenosine deaminase is the enzyme responsible for severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID. To hear more about SCID and other inborn errors of immunity, stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be going over all of those in detail. And that about wraps it up. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with some practice questions. Question 1. A three-month-old baby boy is brought to the emergency department with a two-day history of fever and now with vomiting and drowsiness. On physical exam, the baby has generalized hypotonia and is difficult to rouse. Laboratory results reveal ammonia levels five times the upper limit of normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Measure the ratio of serum phenylalanine to tyrosine. B. Administration of sodium phenylbutyrate and IV fluids with 10% dextrose. C. MRI of the head and neck without contrast. Or D enzyme replacement therapy with ornithine transcarbamylase? Answer B. Administration of sodium phenylbutyrate and IV fluids with 10% dextrose. This infant with nonspecific symptoms of lethargy and vomiting in the setting of a recent fever is found to have hyperaminemia, which should strongly clue us into a disorder of amino acid metabolism. Hyperaminemia can quickly evolve into cerebral edema, so our treatment is going to involve lowering ammonia levels with either hemodialysis or a pneumonia scavenging agent such as sodium phenylbutyrate. In addition, IV fluids with 10% dextrose can provide hydration and an easy source of fuel for the baby until such time that a specific diagnosis can be made. Question 2. You are examining a two-day-old baby girl in the newborn nursery. She was born to a 25-year-old G2P2 woman at 39 weeks and was doing well with breastfeeding until this morning when the baby began vomiting and was not able to continue with feeding. On physical exam, you palpate the liver's edge 4 centimeters below the costal margin and note bilateral cloudiness in the lenses of the eyes. Laboratory analysis is significant for low levels of the enzyme galactose-1-phosphate uridyltransferase. Which of the following is the most likely long-term outcome for this patient? A. Progressive neurological deterioration followed by death within a few years. B. Surgical correction alone followed by complete resolution in symptoms. C. Recurrent episodes of vomiting during periods of fasting. Or D. Gonadal dysfunction. Answer D. Gonadal dysfunction. This newborn girl with vomiting hepatomegaly, and cataracts is found to have low levels of galactose-1-phosphate uridyltransferase, 
confirming our diagnosis of classical galactosemia. Treatment for this baby will be to switch to a soy-based formula, but it's also important to note that up to 80% of females with classical galactosemia will go on to develop primary ovarian insufficiency, and thus should be counseled on the use of hormone replacement therapy as they get older. Question 3. A 27-year-old man is brought into the hospital by an ambulance for sudden-onset dysarthria and gait disturbances. About 30 minutes ago, he was witnessed by his friends to have garbled speech and become unable to walk correctly. They denied any drug or alcohol use. After being evaluated in the emergency department, he is found to have an NIH stroke scale score of 13 and underwent a head CT without contrast followed by intravenous TPA therapy. During your workup, the patient's labs are significant for elevated serum levels of the amino acid homocysteine. Which of the following is most likely to also be present in this patient? A. Joint pain and a history of dark, urine-stained diapers as a baby. B. High levels of isoleucine metabolites in the urine. C. Multiple angiokeratomas on the skin of the lower abdomen. Or D. Disproportionately long limbs and digits. Answer. D. Disproportionately long limbs and digits. This young adult with an acute stroke and high serum levels of homocysteine likely has homocysteinuria, caused by a deficiency in the enzyme cystathionine beta-synthase. In addition to an increased risk in blood clots and strokes, homocystinuria is also associated with skeletal abnormalities resulting in a morphinoid habitus, such as disproportionately long limbs and digits. Joint pain and dark urine-stained diapers are features of alcaptinuria. Isoleucine metabolites in the urine are seen in maple syrup urine disease, and angiokeratomas of the lower abdomen are a feature of Fabre disease, which while Fabre disease also does have an association with strokes at a young age, is not associated with elevated serum levels of homocysteine. Question 4. A couple comes to you to discuss genetic counseling. Both individuals are carriers for mutated HEX-A, the gene responsible for causing Tay-Sachs disease. Which of the following statements is true? A. 50% of their male children will have Tay-Sachs disease. B. 25% of their children will be carriers for Tay-Sachs disease. C. If this couple does give birth to a child with Tay-Sachs disease, then a missense mutation would result in much milder symptoms as compared to a frame shift mutation. Or D. This couple should be advised against having a baby together. Answer, C. If this couple does give birth to a child with Tay-Sachs disease, then a missense mutation would result in a much milder presentation as compared to a frameshift mutation. Both of these potential parents are carriers for Tay-Sachs disease, which is inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern, meaning that each child they have carries a 25% risk of being born with both defective alleles. However, not all mutations are created the same. In most cases, Tay-Sachs will present with rapid neurodegeneration in a young child. However, there are some forms of adult-onset Tay-Sachs disease, and this is because they have partial residual activity of hexosaminidase A, which is more likely to happen in mutations that occur closer to the terminal end of the sequence, or in missense mutations, wherein just a single amino acid changes, as opposed to a frameshift mutation wherein an assertion or deletion will shift the triplet reading frame and alter the entire downstream sequence.